Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today's interview is with Hannah Samek Norton, the author of The Serpent's Crown. Today we dive into early 13th century Cyprus. The Knights of the Fourth Crusade have just sacked the imperial city of Constantinople. And although the Eastern Roman Empire will endure for another 250 years, they will never quite recover from the devastation of that attack. The brutal politics of Outremer, as the Europeans of that time called the Middle East, fully merit the adjective Byzantine, as becomes obvious right away. Prologue, the Kingdom of Jerusalem, summer in the year of the Incarnate Word, 1204. The ambush came just as they left the last wadi. Eight men in black robes, swords drawn. Billowing dust whipped up by forge-hot wind had obscured their charge, so that they tore through the king's surprised escort, before the first warning shout went up. They toppled two of King Emery's mounted men-at-arms from their saddles, and aimed at the man in the cloak of blue silk embroidered with heavy silver thread. The others in the small royal cavalcade ought to have rallied around their lord. They did not. They threw themselves at the attackers, leaving the king of Cyprus and Jerusalem to fend for himself. The dust choked and blinded the contestants, and in the confusion the attackers wasted several precious moments before they grasped that they faced a unified front by which time three of them had bled out their lives into the soil. As suddenly as the dust storm had appeared, it vanished, along with the remaining attackers. Wearing a sergeant's hauberk under a plain cloak, the man who led the rout halted his horse, forestalling the pursuit. Let them go, Barley. The man in the royal blue cloak rode up, worry in his voice. Are you all right, sire? Emery de Lusignan leaned forward, and with the hem of the man's costly cloak, wiped the blood from his sword. He sheathed it and took off his helmet and coif. Quite. He spat out a mouthful of grit. Thank you for impersonating me, Barley. That wretched thing is finally useful. It was a wedding gift from my mother-in-law. The old Medusa complains that I never wear it. I don't want to hear about it ever again. He waved to his companions, his graying blonde hair bristling with sweat. His eyes, the color of blue chalcedony, blazed with exhilaration. No word to anyone. Understood? And now, please join me in welcoming Hannah Norton. Hi, Hannah. Thanks so much for agreeing to talk with me today. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. So from your website, I know that you, like me, uh, trained as a historian before becoming a novelist. Uh, You grew up in Czechoslovakia, then in Canada, and now you live in the southwestern United States. Uh, Tell us about that part of your journey. What was your childhood like, and how did you decide to pursue a doctorate in history? Well, as you know, in, in Europe, you're pretty much surrounded by history, so you can't escape it. And uh, I spent quite an ordinary childhood exploring castles and ruins and museums and historical places and all that sort of a good stuff. And uh, at that time, of course, we lived under communism, so the uh, amount of reading you could actually do that was any good was pretty much limited. So I sort of marinated in <laughs> historical fiction, written about the you know, later part of the 19th century, early 20th century, and that was sort of my, my introduction to history to begin with. And um, after the Russians invaded Czechoslovakia, uh, we ended up as refugees in Canada, and that's where I learned English and eventually went to uh, University of Western Ontario. And for some strange reason, I kept getting good grades in history. And so I stuck with it uh, through my master's degree, and then I applied for a graduate program at, uh, at UNM and ended up here, and uh, the rest is history. So uh, was your specialty medieval Europe? Actually, it's sort of ironic. It's not. Uh, when I came to UNM, I, I specialized in uh, what's called U.S. West, the Native American history. But I do have a rather strange combination of uh, my, my degree with uh, early modern Europe. And uh, I, I ended up teaching European history most of the time is my favorite subject. And I, I tell my, you know, my friends that I'm one of, probably one of the few people 
who can discuss the um, Doors Allotment Act and the defenestration of Prague at the same time. So, <laughs> so that's uh, like my, my background to European history. And I do publish fiction under my own name, but the subject matters of my uh, professional life and my authoress life is so far apart that, um, you know, there is no question that there is some sort of a uh, conflicting crossbreeding, as it were. Well, that's interesting. So when and why did you make the shift into writing historical fiction? Uh, actually, it was probably, um, like I said, I always loved reading it. But, you know, writing was something for other people who were these huge talents like, uh, um, you know, Henrik Sienkiewicz, the great Polish writers of historical fiction who actually won a Nobel uh, prize for for his uh, epic histories. And so I was terribly impressed with those with those with those people. And I actually haven't thought about it until I was teaching college um, in the late 1990s, and my students, as you probably well know, are usually complaining about having to write essays. And I said, you know, well, it's not all that difficult. Uh, you can write three pages, for heaven's sake. And they were saying, well, it's really hard. And I said, well, I'll show you. I'll write a book. And <laughs> ten years later, I actually got around to it. And since I always loved historical fiction, I wanted to see if I could do it. And, of course, I found out that it's rather more difficult than it looks on the page when you're the reader. And I certainly tip my hat off to anybody who writes uh, historical fiction. And so I sort of, you know, backed into it. It was never my sort of a primary interest uh, after becoming a historian, although I kept reading historical fiction and, and still do. So uh, you've nicely set up the next question because I'm, you're right; it's much harder to do than it, you would think it was uh, when you're when you're reading the historical fiction or any kind of fiction. Actually, how did you make that shift? That is, how did you transition from being a historian to a novelist? Well, you know, I, I, it's sort of hard to say, have to have to have to say. Um, you know, I don't think I really sort of mastered novel writing. In fact, I have um, my historian, fellow historical novelist, Stephanie Cowell, was mentioning um, on, on Facebook that, you know, every time you start writing a new, a new novel, you sort of begin to re relearn the process all over again. And to me, it was uh, basically, you know, read a lot of books about how to write novels. <laughs> and uh, after that, it was sort of fumbling along, hoping that it doesn't sound too silly or ridiculous and, and uh, you know, generally atrocious. And what I find interesting is that a lot of people who are writing historical fiction, they sort of, or any other fiction, they sort of mention that, you know, they sort of have it always in them and that the first time they started writing was, I don't know, age six when they wrote their first novel. And that they're compelled to write, you know, every, every day and they are so excited about writing. And actually, I don't feel like that at all. Uh, frankly, I don't actually like to write at all. And uh, it's something that compels me to write. It's probably deadlines or just simply being ashamed of telling people that I'll write something and then not doing it. So, you know, it's like writing a dissertation. <laughs> so once you get into it, uh, it's being in the middle of the seas and you just have to keep going. Um, otherwise, you're going to see yourself as a total and complete failure. So that's probably what compels me more than anything else. The idea that I got into this, I better see it to the end. Uh, that's interesting. I, I I do sympathize, actually. I never intended to write fiction either. I mean, I've written academic history for years, but it was a big surprise to me when I started writing my first novel. So you mostly you mostly read books about novel writing then. You didn't join a writer's group or um, have online critique partners or anything like that. Well, I did. I did join a, um, a, a large uh, writers group in, in Albuquerque, which is called the Southwest Writers. But it, I really, I don't know. I'm, I'm, you know, historians tend to be sort of solitary people, and that's that's pretty much me. I have I have a, a couple of very good friends. Um, one of them is, is is a real historian, and she also reads a lot of historical fiction. The other one um, is very very skilled writer of of romance, who has very good technical skills. And so those are the two people that I, you know, I trust their judgment and I, and I rely upon them. I really don't go in for, you know, critique groups very much. It's just my, um, just, just my personal preference. I know they are very useful to certain people and I certainly don't have anything against them. And you learn an awful lot by, by joining a writer's group and, uh, you know, listening to presenters and so on. So I found that very helpful, but 
you know, like any historian, where do you where do you begin when you want to learn a new thing? Well, you begin by doing research, and so the research is aha. There has to be a way that it will teach you how to write a novel. And of course, I ended up with six trunks of books telling me how to, you know, write a novel. And I thought, well, okay, I have to, you know, plunge plunge into the water at some point. And that's basically how I how I started. I know it sounds weird. It sounds weird, but that's how I did it. <laughs> no, it doesn't sound weird. I mean, everybody has their own approach, so it did. Yeah, I'm don't just they interested. Do? Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, critique groups can be wonderful or they can be terrible. It depends really on who's in them. Mine is very small, so it's basically the same as your two friends. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I mean, I think the you know, I think it's sort of hard to to sort of get to everybody and give them a fair shake in a in a in a larger critique group. But like I said, I have you know nothing against them. But certain things work for certain people, and uh, my my friends certainly work for me. So, are you still actively teaching? I was I was teaching uh, part time. Uh, I was teaching full time, then I was teaching part time. I sort of you know left the, the the academic jungle because I finally had enough. Not not with the students whom I whom I loved, and and I still remain friends with some of them. In fact, one of my former students from way back just contacted me, and uh, we're going to do lunch. So that sounds really nice, and uh, I really enjoyed my years teaching. Uh, I just can't stand the you know educational management as it's turned into these days. And so I'm, uh, I'm basically doing, I'm self-employed and I'm doing, um, you know, my own stuff. But I do teach through um, continuing education. So I sort of do keep my toe uh, in, uh, uh, in, in teaching and I, and I enjoy that very much because you have the freedom to do whatever you want and you have a very interested and, and, and passionate uh, audience. And I make plenty of friends through, through those contacts as well. So I'm, you know, about... Eighty percent non-teacher and twenty percent continuing in the uh, in sort of the academic environment. Besides, I need the access to academic libraries. So there you go. I know, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> <laughs> I really wonder sometimes how people who don't have that access manage to get get their research done at all. It's it's yeah. such a privilege. <laughs> yeah, it's both very selfish and very devious of me. I know. <laughs> So, um, so how do history and novel and historical fiction compare for you? Are they different approaches to the same topic? Are they different ways of, of thinking and, or being in the world? What, what do you think about that makes you prefer one in a particular situation than the other somewhere else? You know, this is one of those sort of a, a questions with which historical fiction writers and, and some historians continue to wrestle. And I find it absolutely fascinating as a historian uh, who writes historical fiction. I don't know, you know, if you feel about it uh, the, the same way because there's different opinions, of course. And this is one of the issues, you know, how much history, how much fiction and how, you know, how do they differ? That's sort of the, the basis of much of the controversy and, and, uh, and, and discussion. Uh, I'm a member of the Historical Novel Society, which I absolutely love, and I met some of my, you know, heroes in, in historical fiction through them. But um, I, I actually devoted a great deal of time um, and, and research to that, to that question, and I, and I did a, 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 you know, a presentation at this uh, uh, continuing education on, on this very subject. And I think, you know, sort of the, the short of it is basically that, you know, both are exercises in communication through um, a form of literature, of course. Uh, but the per- communication is, you know, from a different, for a different purpose and for a, a different audience. So with history, of course, you stick with the documentary record and the evidence, and it, you show clearly where you insert yourself into the into the into the narrative, and you are the you know the 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 the, the sole narrator, and usually it's for the purposes of of, of uh, debate and disputation with your peers. In other words, this is not something that you would you would necessarily engage with with general a general audience. And uh, a lot of people have a hardest time understanding that you know historians do not write for other people, and they complain that historical. Uh, you know, historians write this dry stuff that nobody reads, and my, <laughs> I'm always standing up and defending historians, and my, my answer is that, you know, it's like complaining that a manual on, you know, appendectomy uh, isn't exciting enough, um, that that's not our, our select audience. Uh, you know, perhaps it ought to be, but that's the way the profession evolved. Uh, so, I don't know, does that make sense? It does make sense. I mean, one of the things I really notice is that if you're writing academic history, you 
obviously you, you want to find out as much information as you can, but it's perfectly acceptable to say, I don't know this, or I can't know this because the documents don't exist. And one of the differences in fiction is because you're spinning this tale and you're bringing out, um, you know, you're trying to recreate this world of the past to the extent that that's possible. And I agree with Ian Mortimer that it's neither possible to be completely accurate or particular, you know, completely authentic. And in fact, it's probably not even desirable. But you can't say at a certain level, I don't know what this person would be wearing, right? I mean, she's your character. She, You have to make something up. And you have the freedom to make something up, which is great. But it's a very different approach. You know, you, you have to try to replicate people's thoughts, people's feelings, imagine how they would be in a situation where the rules of the society are quite different from ours, that kind of thing, at a, at a different level from academic history. I think that's part of why it's more interesting to read the fiction, but it also, in some ways, I think, makes it harder to write. Yeah, and, and exactly. And, you know, when I was doing my sort of studying about, okay, there has to be a key to writing historical novels. And, you know, of course, the, 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 the bottom line is that in case of the historical novel, you know, you are writing, you know, you're the narrator who is trying to actually evoke, uh, you know, an emotional response from the reader on purpose. And you work from uh, uh, the point of view of, you know, the POV of multiple characters. And at that point, you can, of course, claim that, you know, you have nothing to do with it. I don't care. You know, it's not my fault that they are wearing this particular thing and that they're doing these strange and horrible things. You know, it's, it's them. <laughs> it's not you. And you sort of have a, a degree of responsibility, but at the same time, a degree of freedom to sort of cut yourself loose from, like you said, you know, the, the stuff that we don't know. Um, and that's, that's probably one of the most, most challenging um, um, issues for a historian. And as, as you indicated, we do tend to cling to the record, and that sort of stops us dead when there is no more to it. Um, so that's sort of, um, I think that's one of the things that people who are writing historical fiction who are not, you know, historians, even though they might very much love history, um, sort of have a hard time uh, grasping that there are certain things we as historians would not say, and, and in fact, professionally cannot say. Right. Yes, I think that's true. So let's talk about how this plays out in your own novels. I mean, we're focusing on The Serpent's Crown, but the story actually begins in The Sixth Surrender, which you published with Penguin in 2010. So uh, it features the same couple, uh, Julien de Charnay and Guérin de La Salle, as well as everyone's favorite lioness in winter, Aliénor d'Aquitaine. <laughs> Eleanor of Aquitaine. That's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, perfect. <laughs> could you give us a brief introduction? To, I love that movie. <laughs> years oh, ago. I do too. I do too. <laughs> so, could you give us a brief introduction to that book? You don't have to spoil anything. Just set it up um, where Juliana and Guerin are at the beginning. Well, you know, when I was when I was researching about, you know, telling my students I'll write a novel, <laughs> sort of, I know that I thought, well, I know, you know, I made a promise, so you better fill it. So I was casting about to see, you know, well, what can I write about? And one of the things that I didn't want to write about is, you know, sort of the stuff that everybody else writes about. And by that time, uh, you know, the the, the, the tutors the tutors were taken, as it were, uh, by quite quite a quite a slew of very capable uh, writers. So I was casting about to see, you know, where am I going to set the story? And I knew that somehow I knew because I'm a historian and I plan things that it was going to be a trilogy. And so I, you know, I cast about sort of in, in, in history of where, you know, where to, set, where to set it. And one of the things I really wanted was to have the female characters uh, to be the primary movers and shakers. And um, so I figured, uh, you know, well, let's, let's, let's see what sort of interested my, my students, where I sort of got them hooked. And that was, uh, oddly enough, you know, when I was teaching the Middle Ages, the, you know, the 12th and 13th centuries, which were, you know, the, what the historians call it, the age of heiresses. And uh, this is, of course, the period where women, often very often young girls, ended up inheriting vast territories and as a result became the pawns and marital prizes in sort of the political jockeying among the uh, royal and baronial families of France, England, and of course uh, in the Holy Land. So I, I figured that that is going to be, you know, something that I should really take a look at closer. 
And I knew, of course, that Eleanor of Aquitaine became sort of a cottage industry publishing at that time as well. And I didn't really want to deal with her uh, because, again, there were any number of very capable writers. And so I I figured that sort of the tail end of the lioness's uh, life was something that I could could really use because of that transitional period. So I picked uh, the years... For the, for the trilogy, sort of chopped up in roughly five years between 1200 and 1216. So it's like, you know, the end of the 12th, beginning of the 13th century. And so the Sixth Surrender um, covers the first five years, just from 1200 to 1205. And uh, I, in that period, what I sort of tried to hook my students in on was a story about, you know, the death of Richard and the um, accession to the throne of John of England and how he got himself into trouble by, uh, you know, snatching away and marrying uh, this 12-year-old heiress to Angoulême, Isabelle d'Angoulême. And uh, this young girl was at that time being engaged to uh, previously, you know, betrothed, uh, which was pretty serious, um, you know, uh, legal contract uh, to uh, one of the uh, perennially rebellious and rather fascinating um, uh, uh, point of in novels, the the Lords of Lusignan, and that of course, t- t- you know, this sort of a kidnapping or tacit kidnapping, uh, really ticked off the the Lusignans and caused an enormous amount of trouble uh, for for John, um, culminating in in 1205 with him basically being you know run out of out of Normandy. So that was a sort of a juicy stuff that sort of you know appealed to me. And I thought, well, this begs to be told and retold in, in novels. And so the female and male characters uh, in The Sixth Surrender, the real and the imagined, including the lioness, uh, became the central actors in these, in these conflicts. And, of course, all thanks to the machinations of uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine. And uh, I, I really you know, enjoyed sort of writing the part about her. Uh, I was the end of her life uh, being ensconced in Fontevraud Abbey, which I, by the way, finally got a chance to visit, and I was totally awed. Um, and uh, here's a, a, you know, a woman who knows that her less than capable son has inherited all, all these territories, and uh, she's going to do everything in her power uh, to make sure that um, you know his his properties are preserved, and so Eleanor manages to manacle in holy matrimony together two totally incompatible people, which are you know this this very young, inexperienced uh, uh, Juliana de Charnay, who is the uh, the, the novice at Fontevraud, and this rather um, enigmatic man, uh, Garin de La Salle, and that's how I sort of started. And um, that was sort of, you know, the background or the the, the first stop, the first steps in the uh, in, in the trilogy. So the um, sixth surrender then is the first uh, five years, and and the next, uh, the serpent's crown, then covers the the, the sort of the, the middle portion. Yeah, I actually really like that. I've read uh, novels about Eleanor's earlier life when she was married to Henry II, and even before that, but I. <laughs> really hadn't heard very much about the end of her life, and she was obviously still plotting like crazy. <laughs> yeah. Right after the day she died, she yeah. was really quite extraordinary. Um, something else I wanted to ask you about, because it's it's a theme that runs through. You mentioned the Lusignan, um, who have a fascinating history. We'll, we'll get back to Juliana and Guerin in a minute, and also to specific members of the Lusignan clan, but they, um, their story is that they are descended from a half-serpent, Melusine. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that story? Well, this is one of the, sort of the, the sidelines that, that I sort of, evo- you know, sort of evolved, and I started pursuing it. In fact, I have a long uh, sort of a discussion of Melusine and the Lusignans, and, and in fact, the Czechs. <laughs> And Starbucks, um, strange connection on my on my um, on my blog. If anybody's interested, yeah, the you know the Melusine, the image of the Melusine, of course, is an ancient uh, pre-Christian uh, image that uh, you know exists in a lot of uh, in, in a lot of uh, folk tales, and uh, it's it's a character of a woman who is uh, you know half half supposedly half serpent or you know half half fish from the waist down, and then she appears as as a normal woman from the waist up, and uh, she is supposed to be the totemic ancestress uh, of the Lusignans, having uh, sort of lured one of their uh, ancestors uh, into marrying her with the promise that uh, he will never, ever, ever 
uh, see her in her in her in her bath on Saturday. And of course, um, you know they have children. They have they're quite happy together. She has any any number of of uh, very interesting and and capable and brave sons. And uh, of course, her husband, being a man, um, sort of gets gets curious and uh, uh, peeks into into her uh, into her bath while she's taking a bath and realizes there's this you know fish tail or serpent tail flopping out of the tub. And uh, he gets you know terribly upset and opens opens the door and and she discovers you know that she has been seen and she utters this horrible cry and flies out the window and never ever to be seen again. And the story is that she is uh, returning only at night uh, to take care of her children and that she flies around the tower of of the castle of Lusignan, which of course doesn't exist anymore because it was demolished back in the 16th century. Um, but uh, that she's, you know, when she's flying around the tower, she's announcing with her with her cry the the death of the of of of, of, of the current lord. And of course, the you know, it's it's a fascinating story, and there's a lot of actually academic uh, writing about her. You know, what does she mean as far as you know the the uh, the, the female symbol, sort of this ambiguity of of her nature. And I was mostly interested in sort of her her impact or her influence on creating this family that would take this 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 pagan ancestress who you know in some instances are sort of denounced as a demon figure uh, as as their own and what i find even more interesting is that she was also uh, sort of adopted or she was uh, accused of being the ancestress of the uh, plantagenets oh really i didn't realize yeah, that and, yeah, you know, it's you know, the devil's the devil's brood, you know, Eleanor and and her and her and her sons, the devil's brood. Well, that refers to you know the the um, ancestry of of uh, of uh, the Plantagenets in Melusine, and she is sort of like an all-purpose image that has been you know floating around the region of Poitou obviously for a long time, and she does make as I said, appearance in other parts of the world, including, of course, in, in Czechoslovakia, where we know Melusine as being this, you know, the spirit of, of winter uh, that sort of howls around the, um, the, the the chimneys. And I was quite familiar with the story, and so I was quite surprised that she actually is traced to this particular family, to the, to the Lusignans, and that, you know, if you go to Poitou and around Parthenay and Lusignan, there is these little signs in French saying, Pays de Melusine, you know, the land of Melusine. I'm thinking, aha! You know, there she is, working, working her magic as a as a sort of a tourist tourist attraction. So that's sort of a, a you know interesting sideline. I I did I use her in uh, you know in in my novel as a sort of a as a sort of a presence that casts a certain. Uh, I wouldn't say exactly a shadow, but definitely a presence in shaping the mind of my uh, you know of my of my female character. Um, and so that does mean sort of an interesting sideline that, that I got into. So I, I, you know, if you're really interested, I think the Melusine story is, is definitely, um, you know, something that's, um, that's something to be, to be explored. Yeah, I can confirm that there is a really interesting post on your blog as well as beautiful pictures of Fontevraud and um, lots of fun posts, actually. I mean, people should, I'll give the address at the end and people should really go there and, and read up on some of the, the background information uh, because it was very well done. So we're now at the Serpent's Crown where the de Lusignan clan are back full force. Uh, the first person we meet is Aymeri de Lusignan, who is the king of Cyprus and Jerusalem. And uh, that's the summer of 1204, but the story itself actually picks up a few months later in Poitou. So uh, give us a bit of a sense of what's going on in those two opening scenes. Uh well, you know, you, one of the things I learned about storytelling techniques is that, you know, you have to sort of begin with your characters in sort of the known world and then, then you know, drag them kicking and screaming uh, out of that world and on a journey which is going to be uh, both external and internal. And so we sort of start off in, uh, in, um, in, in Parthenay, uh, in Poitou, which, is, which I also visited, and that was sort of... Um, after the introduction, I mean, after we sort of see what's going on in in the Holy Land, um, so we go sort of go back to to Parthenay and to see what's what's going on there. And uh, my description of the place is uh, is sort of based on my imagination with what it could have looked like when my characters uh, live there. And we have our our 
our protagonist, I'm just flipping through the book here, uh, she is, um, let's see, she sneaked out of the fortress to unburden her conscience uh, to her confessor about the canonical validity of her marriage. And as you know, the uh, issue of, uh, you know, marriage is, you know, you know what, does, what, what does a marriage make? And that's one of the issues that, of course, is still on our minds today and very much disputed. And it was, it was an issue in the, in the Middle Ages. So the, you know, the nature of her marriage, the validity of her marriage in the eyes of God and the eyes of church uh, is extremely important to her and since she's married to Garand de la Salle. And uh, so she sneaks out of the fortress without her husband knowing it, and she goes to a confessor and sort of asking for advice. And she, of course, doesn't get very far in her confession since uh, her husband shows up and um, in his usual um, subtly menacing way threatens the poor priest uh, because he doesn't want anyone to know that there are actually, you know, canonical issues with the marriage. And uh, those revelation of those issues could actually threaten a number of lives of very vulnerable and rather important people. So that scene sort of sets up the internal conflict for this couple. Uh, you know, what does a marriage make? And then the... Um, um, a question of, uh, you know, the exterior intrigue or the exterior question is about the regency of the island of, of, of Cyprus. Uh, should something happen to the king, to Amory de Lusignan, uh, he has a young son who is going to inherit, you know, who is going to be the regent while the young man uh, reaches uh, majority, which is, by the way, at that time at the age of 15. Can you imagine that? That's rather amazing. So you have sort of this internal conflict about, you know, what, what is a marriage and what is, you know, what is my loyalty and duty to this person, to this husband? And at the same time, there's an external conflict that, you know, there are other considerations, other duties, other loyalties that impinged upon your, you know, your, your, your private world, essentially. And so that's just the, the internal and the external conflict and propels the story out of France into this exotic Byzantine uh, world with, uh, I think, rather amazing and interesting characters. They are amazing and interesting. And actually, I'd like to talk, I don't, you know, I love talking about the history and the politics are, are uh, an essential part of these novels. But I don't want to give the impression to people who are listening that that's the only thing. I mean, that's really the background. But the characters are still primary. Uh, tell us about Juliana. What kind of person is she? Yes, well, you know, a historian likes the history, but of course, as a novelist, you have to, you know, come up with characters that will grab you. And and I know a lot of historians write about a real historical uh, characters, but I thought, no, this this story better be told through, you know, my fictional characters. So Juliana de Charnay is definitely one of my my creations. Well, she is pretty much in that category of, you know, the the 12th and 13th century um, heiress. She is an orphaned heiress. Uh, she's an heiress of the Viscounty of Tillier, which is in actually in Normandy. Uh, she is a, a former novice, uh, or she was a novice at Fontevraud Abbey, um, where you know, Eleanor sort of manacled her to to Garand de La Salle. Um, in in my mind, I sort of imagined her as a, a sort of a, a, a very young woman in her probably you know late late teens. Um, she is uh, something of a I discover her as a as a bookworm, uh, definitely, and and a, and a mouse burger, um, and. <laughs> <laughs> A mouse burger. I, I love that word. That was, I think it was Helen Gurley Brown who came up with it years and years ago. And uh, I sort of identified very much with being a mouse burger uh, through my, you know, my teenage and, and, and 20s. So. And uh, she's described by um, actually the, uh, um, uh, the, the, the great um, dowager queen of Jerusalem, Maria Khomeini, um, as uh, Julianne is described as being, um, you know, plain, pious, and stupid. And of course, she is. Juliana is plain and very much pious. The religion plays a great deal of uh, important role in her life, as it did in the lives of others. And she is, uh, in, but she's of course uh, not stupid. She is, uh, she's modest. She's virtuous. Uh, she uh, sticks to her principles um, as she understands them. You know, misguided though they might be. Um, and that's because she uh, sees the world. Uh, or actually starts out seeing the world through the books that she had read at the library. Um, 
uh, let's see, she can uh, she can write. That was one of the things that that I thought was important, and she can. Uh, not only spot uh, forgeries, she can also make them, and uh, that that will become a rather important skill uh, in in the serpent's uh, uh, crown. Um, the other thing is that, um, and this is some of the things that readers had a difficulty with, that you know she's very much aware of the fact that um, you know men are often violent towards women, and I know Ian Mortimer in your wonderful interview uh, had talked about that subject, which which sort of upsets contemporary readers, uh, but it, there's nothing that, as far as I'm concerned, you can't do about it. And so Juliana, in fact, I introduced her as having suffered, you know, violence from her own father. Um, and now she has been handed over to a man that has the power of life and death over her, um, somebody who is, you know, in her experiences, pretty much totally alien in every sense to her, in, in every sense of the world. And, uh, of course... You know, as a result, coming with with her sort of a background of, of you know well intended uh, uh, righteousness, uh, she manages to pretty much push all of his wrong buttons, um, and so the you know the, the relationship and the of the female character to the male character was something that you know had upset and in fact outraged some readers, according to my you know comments about the book. But again, um, you know, pointing out clearly the socially acceptable use of violence against women is something that I did not want to uh, um, avoid. Um, and that's how sort of I conceived, uh, you know, Juliana. And of course, since I saw this as a trilogy, her character is going to grow uh, um, uh, over, over time. And, yeah. um, you know, the person who sort of makes her, makes her grow is her circumstances. And of course, you know, her, her, her husband. Yeah, let's talk about him. Uh, I have to say that I'm really impressed. Um, he is so much a 12th century male. I'm not as brave with my own heroes. I tend to make them a little nicer. Well, probably a lot nicer than they would have been in reality. <laughs> <laughs> and he, I mean, he's, he's actually quite charming. He's, he's sympathetic in a way. I mean, he, especially in the, the second book more than the first one, um, but he is very definitely a man of his times. Tell us about him. Well, Guerin de la Salle is, you know, as, as a woman, you know, people ask you about, you know, how do you write, as, as a woman, how do you write male characters? And I guess, you know, if you're a male, how do you write female characters? But, you know, I, I wouldn't know. But uh, so Guerin de la Salle is, is sort of a combination of a number of, of, of characters that I have read about. And um, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, I'm pleased that I actually captured him pretty much the way that I, I envision him. He is a, uh, um, um, he's definitely, like you said, a, a man of his times. Um, he's sort of the man you either love to hate or, or hate to love. <laughs> um, he is a, a, a landless, a landless knight of whom there were plenty at that time. Um, he is. He has become a routier. He is a captain of his own troop of mercenaries, who were called routier at that time. And if they fight, you know, they kill people for money. Um, and he had fought in the Holy Land and for Richard uh, the Lionheart in France. And after the death of Richard, of course, he's sort of you know looking for other employment. And so here's the man who is lived all his life by his, you know, sort of by his wits as well as by by his sword. So he's using, uh, he's used to pretty much using violence, uh, but he's very much uh, sort of a, a, a clever, um, unpredictable, you can even say even a devious character with a very sort of a cynical view of the world because he had actually seen so much of it. But I think that one of the saving graces that I wanted to, to, to give him is that he has a very keen sense of, of self-awareness. And by that, I mean that he knows exactly what, what he is. He knows what he had done. He knows what sort of a life he's leading. And, uh, you know, for that time, he also knows what are the spiritual consequences uh, of leaving, uh, leaving that sort of a life. And, uh, of course, I had to make him quite attractive to women, um, except for, for Juliana. She's just not impressed because, uh, you know, she wanted a man who was honorable, kind, and somebody who can read. And uh, LaSalle doesn't appear to be any one of those above. Yes, um, I think perhaps, I mean, I, I can imagine that one of the reasons that you're getting these comments is because when people read that a, a marriage is, um, you know, that a marriage of convenience has been made, they tend to think in terms of romance. And of course, this is not really a romance. It's, it's definitely 
pure historical fiction in which there happens to be a couple, a married couple at the heart of it. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, you know, so, it's sort of hard. Like, people still read whatever they, whatever they you know, want, uh, want into it. And so, you know, if they want to read it as a romance, there's nothing wrong with reading it as a romance. But it's not a conventional romance. You know, I don't have, uh, you know, my, my, my male character is not, you know, the, the you know, sort of the, the, the sensitive gent that you would sort of expect. And, you know, that was because I sort of, I, I shaped him by, you know, the, the people that we know from history who had, in fact, been mercenaries. And actually, if you, if you go to the Magna Carta, these, these guys are mentioned specifically uh, in the Magna Carta, and people like uh, Gerard Daté and Engelard Sigonier, and there's others, and the barons absolutely hated them. And they tell John, you know, get rid of these people. And uh, they are described by others as men, uh, uh, you know, raised up from the dust. And they could be landless knights like LaSalle. Uh, they could be uh, commoners. Um, they were very often favored and trusted by the kings, including Richard and John, who really could not trust uh, their barons uh, very much. And uh, we do know that Richard had his own captain of mercenaries, uh, a by the name of Mercadier, and Mercadier makes a brief, you know, uh, at least in, in name, uh, appearance in uh, um, The Sixth Surrender. And what is interesting from the record that we know about Mercadier is that Richard trusted him completely, uh, since Mercadier was, I guess, uncharacteristically, you know, uh, loyal to him, and I think that's probably because Richard paid him regularly. Um, but, uh, you know, there were others when Mercadier is, is, is murdered. Um, John hires this guy by the name of Lupesquer, who also makes an appearance in, um, uh, in the first novel. And he's a total, you know, total opposite. And he is absolutely, uh, you know, he, this guy is, is uh, committing atrocities all over um, Normandy against friends and foes and was pretty much universally hated by the, you know, by the barons and by the peasants and by the population. So I sort of imagine, well, what would Garand de La Salle and men who comes from that background, you know, be like sort of in my, in my imaginary flush, as it were? And, you know, I probably wouldn't invite on these guys to tea, that's for sure. And so I try to sort of steer a middle path in making LaSalle's character appropriate to his profession. Um, and that was, of course, you know, besieging fortresses, burning down villages, you know, pillaging, rape, and murder. But also, you know, giving, giving the fact that these people also had to know how to behave at court, um, you know, among other barons, and especially in the, in the company of, of women who are, you know, not camp followers, who are not whores, who are not their mistresses, um, and who, you know, who are sort of uh, women of rank. And I sort of, uh, you know, considered that to be a, a sort of a, a sort of a challenge. So I, I sort of created this, this hybrid character that is actually based on uh, real people. Yes, no, I think he did a really good job. I mean, he's not totally obnoxious, but he is very much uh, what you would expect of a leader of mercenaries in the 12th century, I mean, or 13th century. He's, he is, uh, you know, he tends to, <laughs> they don't have guns yet, so they, but if he did, he would shoot first and ask questions later. <laughs> he swings first and asks questions later. <laughs> That's very true, yeah. I mean, you can't be a nice guy if you're leading, you know, basically a bunch of cutthroats, so. <laughs> no, and I think the main reasons the barons hated them was because they worked for money. You know, that was, they didn't yeah. work out of feudal loyalty. They they worked for whoever paid them the most. Uh, yeah. Which, as someone who writes about Tatars, is something I can totally understand. <laughs> yes, exactly. The entire yeah. Russian government was always trying to figure, jockeying with the Poles to see who was going to yep. pay the Crimean Tatars more, you know. Mm-hmm. Um so by means that we will not uh, go into in too much depth because it would give too much away about who Grant actually is, um, is uh, he ends up in the Holy Land and uh, Juliana ends up uh, following him there. And there they discover an absolute array of scheming characters, uh, most from, uh, from two interrelated clans, the Lusignan, whom we talked about, and is it Ibeline? Is that how you would say yes. it? Yes, Ibelines, yes. Um, who are trying to control Cyprus and Jerusalem and fight off the forces of Saladin. And, you know, they've got a lot on their plates, shall we say. So um, we are coming towards the end. But if you could at least give us a sketch of some of the major players and what they're... You've mentioned some of them in passing. Well, uh, you know, I think that the, the Lucians and the Ibelines are sort of the... Uh, they are very much, the, you know, same... 
families that that are they very much resemble each other in their ambitions and and similarities. And we, of course, if you have uh, seen the movie The Kingdom of Heaven, then you're you're quite familiar with Bailey and De Berlin, um, played by Orlando Bloom. And you know that 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 story is is interesting in what it does not. You know what it doesn't tell about the real history, but you know my my the male the main male character from the Ibelin family is John de Bellin, and I just find it absolutely fascinating because he is the uh, he's the son of of Balian Ibelin and uh, the the Dowager Queen of uh, of Jerusalem Maria Comnene, and uh, he is he's he's just fascinating to me. He is sort of sticks around for a very long time. Um, and during his lifetime, he becomes, uh, you know, himself the uh, the constable or the regent of, of Cyprus. Uh, he acquires the um, uh, the the fief, uh, the territory of, of Beirut, and in fact becomes known as the old lord of Beirut. And he is, becomes a, a, a sort of a legal scholar and a, and a juror that you know has quite a, quite a quite a reputation. And he is a uh, um, he then um, in what he's when he's much older he becomes uh, a man who sort of leads opposition to the claims of Emperor Frederick II of the Holy Roman Empire uh, to claim control over uh, over Cyprus. So you know he, he, he's a man that I think definitely deserves you know his own story. Uh, besides you know Amory de Lusignan, that that is a character that I really liked. Uh, you know a complex character. Actually, you know, in my mind, uh, tough, resourceful, unsentimental, pretty much capable, decent, and an honorable man uh, at the core, and who sort of, you know, holds on to this uh, contested part of the world. And uh, he's he's the uh, the fourth husband of another character that sort of appears occasionally in fiction, and that's uh, Isabella of Jerusalem. Uh, now she's fascinating. She is the heiress to to Jerusalem, and she marries uh, Amory. So she actually has two crowns: one of Cyprus, another one of Jerusalem, just like Amory does. And it, she she is, you know, she sort of received, I think, a sort of a short shrift. And uh, I try to give her some characters since she's not terribly fleshed out in uh, in the historical records. Uh, and so, you know, that that character again, you know, I try not to make her uh, as a passive character as she is in in a lot of the other. Uh, other narratives and uh, uh, Maria Comeni. <laughs> there's a stage mother, <laughs> isn't she? Though, <laughs> yes, I think she's a total stage mother. Ever she and Eleanor would have been <laughs> a battle of titans. <laughs> <laughs> She she does have an ego and an ambition that you know sort of uh, goes on forever. Again, we know sort of very little um, about her once once she be, she becomes the dowager, and she she's the one who of course married um, married um, Bailey, and she's she's the mother of of, of John de Berlin and of Isabella by 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 her by her previous husband, the King of Jerusalem. So these are these are you know totally fascinating characters that I would you know normally wouldn't have any opportunity to chase down, but they sort of absolutely lend themselves uh, for, for, for a historical novel. Yeah, they really do. I mean, they're absolutely perfect for fiction. So before I let you go, I want to ask you a little bit about Quidono Press, uh, which is oh. how I came to know about you, um, because I um, knew Martha Hoffman, who owns it. Uh, how did you end up publishing with them, and, and what can you tell us about the press itself? Well, uh, you know, I, I originally pitched the Six Surrender to Martha when she worked as an agent, and the agency acquired it and sold it to Penguin, and we, we really hit it off. I think that's because we are both both historians, so we sort of, you know, birds of a feather flock together. And, uh, uh, you know, she has a very good sense of, of, of the genre and sort of knows how to massage historians who write uh, that sort of a stuff. So after the shakeup in the publishing industry, when the, the Penguins uh, decided not to exercise, you know, their option for the second one, I was actually contemplating publishing it myself. And then totally out of the, you know, out of the blue, um, Martha contacted me via Cuidono Press. And so it was one of those amazing, perfect timings and opportunities for me to, to, to work with her. Now, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a total Luddite when it comes to, to anything that has to do with electronic stuff. Um, so there was a great advantage that I immediately signed working with an independent press. Uh, like we don't know, you know, your your emails actually get answered in time. Uh, there's a you know great great deal of, of flexibility, you know, give and take on 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 content editing and on layout and on, on the cover. And I just love the cover. I think it's she found it and it's absolutely perfect. 
Um, so it's gorgeous, you know, absolutely, isn't it? Yes, yes. yeah, yeah. Um, so Corridono, you know, offers that combination of you know professional publishing experience with uh, with paper and ebooks that uh, I certainly don't have. It would take me forever to to acquire it. I would certainly probably botch it, and I was more than uh, more than happy. Uh, to work with her, and I'm 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 very very pleased with the with the outcome, and uh, um, hopefully we'll do it again. And she specializes in historical fiction, right? Yes, that that is that is my my understanding. Unless she changed her mind lately, but you know I don't I don't think so. So, what would you like readers to take away from the Serpent's Crown? Well, see, um, yeah, perhaps just a feeling that they had been on a on a journey to a fascinating time and place and guided by intriguing characters and that they had completed that journey together to a um, satisfactory destination. Okay, so um, you mentioned that this is a trilogy, uh, so you are you working on book three now? Well, I, I guess since I mentioned it, I guess I better, right? <laughs> <laughs> there you go, there's the shame factor. <laughs> <laughs> or in other words, Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> I want it on my desk Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, actually I am. So some of the characters from the first novel and the second novel will come back and they'll be up to their old tricks and new tricks. Okay, well, I can't wait to see that because I really enjoyed The Serpent's Crown. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie. And today I've been speaking with Hannah Samick Norton about The Serpent's Crown. You can find out more about her at http hannasamicknorton.wordpress.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. This year, I've added blog posts about books sent to me that, for one reason or another, don't fit into my interview schedule. So the blog is becoming an extension of this channel. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.